Angels in the Bible almost always start out conversations with people in the same way. Fear not. Don't be afraid. Wait, I have good news. As awesome creatures of light sent with messages from the very lips of God, people occasionally have to be reminded not to worship them. Angels are warriors and musicians, and supernatural servants of the Lord. But most of all, they are messengers, especially in the story of Christmas. And the news they delivered was somehow bigger even than these beings bringing it to Earth. A Savior has been born. He is the Messiah. Glory to God in heaven, peace on earth to all those he is pleased with. It's the message God's servants still sing as we wait for the return of the King. This week I was sitting in my office uh, doing a couple of things preparing for Christmas and on an email I came across a important message from our school and when I read the content to be honest with you the first thought that I had in my mind was how long O oh Lord. Uh, the content of the email for several of you may or may not know was an email discussing the fact that there was a nationwide TikTok event that there was essentially exonerating or celebrating the potential of school shootings. Uh, and that day was to be celebrated or exonerated on December 17th. I won't continue too much, but to be honest with you, uh, at that point in time, I just sat there and for some of the thoughts that I had was, my goodness, uh, here we are and we are moving forward to celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and yet we have to read content like this and then obviously have those thoughts in our minds. Uh, several of you know obviously that my wife Kelly is a teacher, I know that several of you here are teachers, uh, obviously we have students, etc., etc., and regardless of decisions that were made for personal reasons, well the one thing that I would say is I think all of us had this anticipation through out the day. The other thing though that I was mindful of was not just the anticipation through that day, but the constant anxiety that the world is living in with all of these dark thoughts, all of these dark times, to the point again that I'm thinking, how long, oh God, how long until, how long until you will come? And the reason that I bring this up is several thousand years ago, there was an individual who was entering into the temple to offer incense for the time of prayer. Interestingly enough, this individual by the name of Zechariah was a priest in the line of Aaron. And interestingly, as he went into the temple, it was an exciting time for him. What we know about scripture is that the priests would two weeks out of the year go in and obviously take care of the operations of the temple in Jerusalem. So Zechariah was in the line and he was essentially 
completing his priestly duty. Scripture estimates that there were about 20,000 priests and essentially two weeks out of the year or 48 weeks out of the year, priests would come in and they would take care of the operations in the temple. And then you say, well, wait a minute, there's four other weeks, 52 weeks in the year, why 48? Well, the other four were used for special celebrations as they had recognized in the Old Testament. So Zechariah is there. He's doing his thing and preparing to care for the needs of the temple. And what occurs is they now move to someone or a priest for the hour of prayer that needs to go in and offer the burning of incense or the sweet aroma that is given up to the heavens as individuals worship Yahweh. Now, Zechariah essentially gets this duty by the casting of lots. Essentially, he draws the short straw receives this, and it's his opportunity to go in and light incense. Interestingly enough, the temple would open at about nine in the morning, and usually that was a time where a priest would go in and burn incense, but this particular time is at about 3 p.m., or what was known as the hour of prayer. Zechariah goes into the temple, obviously, probably giving some prayers for the people of God, but I also think in the back of his mind was another prayer that he had, which was, how long, O God, number one, are you going to wait? Because similarly, Zechariah's time was a time of challenge for the people of God. We recognize that this was during the time of King Herod, and we realize that King Herod wasn't exactly the nicest guy to the Christian people or to the people of God during Zechariah's day. But also, as Zechariah is praying, we can surmise that he's probably also praying a prayer for, God, why is it that I'm serving you? Why is it that I'm giving my life to you and you've chosen to have my wife, Elizabeth, remain barren without child. We discover this early in the text of Luke and realize that he and Elizabeth were in the line of Aaron. He was in the priestly order, but he was obviously not able to have a child. Now, why is that important? Well, in Old Testament times, it was viewed that if an individual remained barren, if they were not able to conceive, that there was something wrong with them, that God was displeased with them, that they weren't, quote-unquote, the right stock. And can you imagine Zechariah going in and taking some time to pray for the people of God, but also in the back of his mind wonder, God, where are you? What are you doing? And why are we without child? If you can imagine the scene, essentially Zechariah enters the temple. He enters sort of the uh, deeper court and begins to very carefully take out the incense that would be used to offer the sweet aroma to God. Now, as you study this, there is a very specific amount, and it was very important that an individual not use either too little or too much, or if any of it dropped on the floor, they would be considered unclean. The other thing that I'll tell you, too, is as we look back to the story of the Good Samaritan, and we recognize that in that story, priests what? 
see the Samaritan lying on the road, and what do they do? They go like this, and they say, I'm not going near that. That person is defiled. That person could bring trouble. And interestingly enough, what we discover is the reason that they're doing that is that those priests are on the way from where they lived to go to Jerusalem for their week of their two weeks to offer, sacri- uh, to offer sacrifice to take care of the temple needs. That's essentially the context that we're in with Zechariah. What we have to remember is Zechariah is carefully doing these things because he's in the inner courts. And again, we realize that obviously you do something wrong. You're not fully clean. You're not fully ceremonially prepared. What could occur is what we all see back in the 1980 movie of Indiana Jones. So he goes in and he begins to pray. The other thing that's important is for 400 years... People haven't heard from God. Now, God is there. God exists. God is working in the world. But interestingly enough, what has occurred is from the time of Malachi, or Malachi if you're Italian, the prophecy had been given that a Messiah would come. However, no one had heard anything from God for 400 years. Friends, this is essentially theologically what we call the intertestamental period. It's essentially the time from the closure of the Old Testament to the quote-unquote opening or start of the new. And for 400 years after Malachi had said, this is what's going to occur, nothing had happened. No other prophets had come. God, quote-unquote, had not spoken. And people began to wonder, where are you? What are you doing? Why are you not here? And so we pick up in this story and we realize that as Zechariah offers his prayers, great things begin to occur. Friends, I don't know what your week has been like. I don't know what your month has been like. But I probably can surmise that for all of us, whether or not we've had great weeks or bad weeks, that there is some form of anticipation about the darkness that we see in our world today. And so this morning, what I want to do is encourage you as we look at this beautiful story in Luke to realize that we have an answer to this question that I think all of us at some point in our lives ask, which is this. As we look at the world today, how can we be assured that God is working? Has anybody ever doubted God working? Has anybody ever gone through something and wondered, God, where are you? What are you doing? Why or why not or when? I think what we see in this is Zechariah is moving forward, faithfully observing his duty as a priest But I would surmise that in the back of his mind, he's looking at the culture that's around him and essentially wondering, how long, oh God, when? When are you going to do something? You've promised this, but where are you? And that's where we pick up in our story this morning. 
If you have your Bibles with you, you're welcome to turn. We're in Luke uh, chapter 1. We're going to pick up in verse 5. Also, the uh, scripture should be up on the screen. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. Just real quick, I'm going to say essentially what that is, is Abijah is a zone or a grouping of area. And that's essentially the group that he was in that then got assigned to the week of the operation in the temple. So he's with sort of a group of Abijah, and it's like, this is your time. You priests in this group are now to go to Jerusalem and obviously do what needs to happen within the temple. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren. And they were both well along in years. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty, he was serving as priest before God. He was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him as standing to the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will, uh, he, uh, will he bring back to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, I just want to pause there for a minute, and that's some pretty good news, isn't it? Pretty amazing. Number one, you're going to get a son. Number two, he's going to be John. And number three, John is going to turn many people of God back to himself. That's pretty good news, but let's continue in the story. Zechariah then asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. The angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not be able to speak until this day happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he had stayed so long in the temple. Pause there. Priest goes in. This is a normal occurrence. I'm not belittling it, but the priest goes in. This is the hour of prayer. They're praying, and all of a sudden, it goes long. That never happens here, does it? <laughs> people start looking at their watches. No, that's theologically incorrect. I don't know that they had watches, but they're all kind of going... This is, this is kind of what's going on in there. Now, here's the thing. Nobody wants to go in there. Right? 
Because if they do, what? They're dead. They're unclean. So they're all kind of going, hmm, what do we do? What's happening? Hmm. You know, pastor's going along. So they kind of keep worshiping and they wonder. So think about this for a minute. So they're out there doing this. And then when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. For he kept playing what? Pictionary with them. (laughs) He kept giving them signs. He can't speak. Now think about this for a minute. I just, I want to kind of act this out. Imagine that Zechariah has gone into the temple. This was a once in a lifetime thing. The other interesting thing is the priests would go and they would attend to the temple on their weekly duties. But when you cast the lot to burn incense, you got to do it one time and then you were removed essentially from that duty. So this is a one opportunity for him to go in, and he's praying before God, most likely, as we see in the context of the scripture, praying for God's people, praying for the sins of people, asking God to deliver them. But at some point, we recognize that he has this personal prayer where he says, God, I don't get it, but why? Why does my wife not have child? And then the next thing you know, to the right side of the altar of incense, where the incense is burning, an angel appears, and it's the angel Gabriel. And this is the news that he gives. And interestingly enough, I'm going to give you just a quick little word of advice. When you get a sign from God, don't question the sign from God. Okay? That one's free. You can take that home with you. He gets a sign, and essentially the angel Gabriel comes and says, this is what I'm going to do. This is what's going to happen. You're going to be given a son, and you're going to give birth, and you're going to call him John, John the Baptist, and he is going to be great among the people of God. But because you don't believe, you're going to be essentially mute. Now, some scriptures will say that he couldn't speak. Others would say that the word mute could encompass also that he couldn't hear. It's kind of one or the other. But what we do know is he could not verbalize what had just transpired. So he comes out late, and he's kind of going... (laughs) And everybody's just kind of going... How much incense did you put in there? (laughs) But notice his excitement. God's spoken. It's been 400 years and I've just saw an angel. And that angel told me that in our barren years, Elizabeth is going to give birth to a son. And he's going to be great among the people of God. And he's doing his best at Pictionary. And everybody's kind of wondering, what's going on? What's happening? But the story continues. Now, I'm not belittling John, okay? This is wonderful news. But what I want you to see in a minute is the even greater news that's about to come. Meanwhile, we're in verse 21. We'll pick up there. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. 
When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant for five months, remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor. And don't miss this. Don't go over this. It's, it's a beautiful story, but as we read Luke, what we do is, is we kind of tend to try to get to Jesus. And I'm not saying Jesus is bad. That's wonderful. But we anticipate and we miss these little nuggets of the reality of what's going on in this story. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Friends, look at this. This is the beginning of demonstrating the ability of God to bring about joy and righteousness through his love and his provision. Elizabeth is now going to have a child. She's no longer going to publicly be disgraced. She's no longer going to be questioned and wondered why or what or why not. Think about that for a minute. And then the story ends. Wonderful. Elizabeth has a child. John's going to do some great things. The people of God are going to come. And that's going to be all. Don't miss this next transition. And this is what is so wonderful about this passage. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings to you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be, but the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great. If you have your Bibles with you, if you like to mark things, I would encourage you to mark this and study the proclamation there versus the proclamation given by Gabriel about John. In a moment, we're going to see the exaltation of our Savior Jesus. John's great. Please hear me. John's wonderful. But it's like, John, Jesus. He will be great. And he will be called the Son of the Most High. That should make someone ponder. Because those words had not been proclaimed since Melchizedek back in Genesis 14, 18. He will be called the Son of the Most High. There is something special about John. There is something extraordinary about Jesus. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob for four years. 
or maybe four if he gets a second term. No, forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. That you don't throw out lightly. Notice the difference between the blessedness of John the Baptist, but the extraordinary aspect of our Savior Jesus. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. Friends, what I want to encourage you in is, is as we look at the world, it's often a time where we wonder, how long, oh God? How much longer until you come home? How much worse will the world have to get? And while I wish that I could give you an answer in the sense of when the time was, if I could, and I said with certainty, I would no longer be able to pastor for you because nobody knows. But what we do know is, with certainty, that day is coming. Just as we know that that day of the arrival or the birth of the Messiah came and was prophesied several hundred years earlier, essentially from probably 800 to 400 years in a period where the prophets said a Messiah is coming, a Messiah is coming. What we also know in the Old Testament is as they said, a Messiah is coming. Things for the people of God didn't get better. They got worse. But sure enough, on that day, as Zechariah went in to burn incense, the angel Gabriel appears and says, Elizabeth will have a child, and you're to give him the name John. And then he follows up and he says, I'm going to do essentially one better. And he goes to Mary and he says, you're going to have a child, and you're going to give him the name Jesus. And he will be the son of the Most High. He is the Son of God. His kingdom will last forever. That's great news. And so as we look at the world today, we wonder, can we be assured that God is working? And what I want to show you through this is the idea that God is always working to bring about the redemption of mankind through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He will not stop working until he says the work is done. And friends, I pray that that encourages your heart and brings joy and peace to your lives as we go about living in the world that we are in today. God has promised it, He has said it, and He will do it, and it will come to be. And so we look at this, and the first thing that I want you to see, particularly in verses 5 through 7, is that God is always working even when it does not appear to be the case. Earlier I said, Zechariah goes in and he is offering incense, wondering, what God are you going to do? We've been doing this. We've been going into the temple. We've been doing these sacrifices for years and nothing's going on. And on a personal note, Lord, why? Why is my wife barren? 
And then Zechariah gets the greatest news he could ever receive. You're going to have a son. And his name's going to be John. And he's going to be great. He's going to bring people to God. And so what I want to encourage you in is I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know where you might be just in your emotions, your thoughts, your spiritual life. But what I want to encourage you in is God is always working. God is always moving. God is always redeeming. God will not stop doing so until he says, Jesus, go collect your bride. And so, friends, as we look outwardly for signs, and sometimes those signs might be evident, or sometimes those signs might not be evident, regardless of the signs that we see, may we look at the sign that we've been given, which is the Scripture, and the promise of God that He is working and He will send His Son to collect the bride, which is the church. When? I don't know. But it will occur just as... For Zechariah, the angel appeared and John was born. And for Mary, the angel appeared and Jesus was given. And then we look particularly at verses 8 through 17. And what I want to show you is this, that God answers the prayer of Zechariah, bringing redemption for God's people through John. Now, think about this for a minute. This is great news. Even if Jesus hadn't came, which he did, and we praise God for it, this is wonderful news for Zechariah. Zechariah, you are going to have a son. You're going to give him the name John, and John is going to bring the people of God back. That's good news. And so the other thing that I want to encourage you in, sometimes when we think through and we wonder, we wonder about, does God answer personal prayer? Is it worth it? Is it worth it to go to God with my burdens? What I can tell you is absolutely yes. And the reason that I want to tell you this is, Zechariah goes in as a priest, doing what he needs to do for, obviously, the priestly observance. So I'm sure that there was an aspect or a group of things that he had to do or pray as he offered prayers for the people of God. But somewhere in there, somewhere in that prayer that's answered later when Gabriel comes and says, your prayers have been answered, and then he gives the context of how his prayers, you will be given a son. Somewhere in there, he personally just says, God, can you give me a son? Can you show me that I'm yours? I've lived my life righteously for you. I've done everything I can to honor you with my life. To uphold your character. And yet this one thing causes people to question our righteousness before you. Causes people to think that we're defiled. Causes people to make us think that we're second-rate citizens. Would you answer this for me? And God comes and he says, look, Zachariah, I'm going to give you a two-for-one special. Not only are the prayers of the people going to be answered, and people are going to become righteous before you, but I heard your prayer. I heard your cry. And I will give you a son. And I'm not going to give you just any son. I'm going to give you John. 
And John is going to bring the people of God back to me. Friends, don't ever think that when you pray, that when you have these personal needs that God doesn't care or God doesn't hear. He hears our prayers and he will answer them in his time and in his place according to his perfect, pleasing, and honoring will. God answers the prayers of Zechariah to bring redemption for God's people through John, but then also brings back, and this is where I'm going in verses 18 through 25, Gabriel brings the good news to Zechariah and Elizabeth and redeems the righteous. We know by the content of Scripture that they're righteous before God, but we also know in the end when Elizabeth says, you've taken away my disgrace, that even though they were righteous before the sight of God, they were disgraced among the sight of the people. And friends, I don't know, but that might seem kind of similar for some of you out there. And God says, I'm going to answer this, and I'm going to answer this in a big way to demonstrate not only that I'm redeeming my people, that I'm bringing them salvation, but I hear your prayer and I will answer it for you because I am a God who is personal in your life. And so then we get to this idea where we realize that Gabriel says, I'm going to do this and I'm going to redeem you. And, like I said before, I'll say this one more time, when you're given a sign by God, don't question the sign given by God. Unless you want to play Pictionary for five months. Zechariah essentially says, how is this going to be? And here's the thing that I'll lovingly encourage you with. Gabriel says, because you questioned, you're going to be mute. But this is what I love about God. But he doesn't say, and because you question, I'm not going to do this. He still comes forward with the promise that is given. And so, friends, the other thing that I think is a little bit of a spiritual truth or a little nugget of truth here is at times we might question God. And what I want to tell you is at times when you question God, that's okay. But at other times we might doubt God. And sometimes that might cause a consequence. It might cause something in our lives that's harder. But just because we question God, God does not remove the promise that he gives or that he has given or that he will do. And so we get to the joy. It's interesting, as I look at commentaries, we realize that Elizabeth goes back for five months and she remains in seclusion. And there's so much speculation as to why. And to be honest with you, I can't give you a conclusive answer because there's just a variety of different thoughts. But the general consensus, or the sort of the best arrival that I can get at, is she is just in awe over what has been given. And... She is waiting for the promise to come. And she worships and says, the Lord has done this for me. Friends, one of the things that I want to tell you is, is that in this moment, this is the greatest exaltation that she can give. She doesn't say, oh, it happened, oh, it's coincidence, it occurred. But she says, no, I'm crediting God because he is the one that has done this for 
me. The other thing that I want to tell you is, is that when God answers your prayers, a word of encouragement to you is to make sure that you thank God for answering your prayers and give him the credit. He's taken away her disgrace and shown favor. She now can stand before the people of God, righteous as she was, but righteous as she is. And then the story concludes. No, it doesn't. I think Luke is very strategic, and I think God is very strategic in how he goes about bringing about the Messiah. Because he uses John, and John is a wonderful event. John the Baptist is an amazing thing. But then what we see is as great as John is, I'm going to give you even greater. And that's the announcement of the arrival of Jesus. And so the principle that I want to see as God brings about this redemption of mankind in verses 26 through 33 is this. Gabriel brings news that the work of John would be surpassed by the greater work, or I should say the greatest work of Christ. Period. Done. Nothing more. And so friends, this is sort of an allusion to what's going to be occurring when the author of Hebrews writes, hey, in the past, we had these great individuals. We had Moses. We had Melchizedek. We had these great high priests. And they were good. But now we have Jesus. And this is all we need. Right here is essentially the reverberation of that proclamation. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth in a town in Galilee to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now, I want to I be careful. I just want to separate. I'm going to try to do this as, as cleanly as possible. John the Baptist was conceived by standard means. Okay? Does that help? But what we know in the movement of God is that the Holy Spirit is within John preconception. That's a miracle in and of itself. Jesus is conceived by non-standard means. That breaks essentially the lineage or the bondage of Aaron. Or sorry, of, of uh, uh, Adam. Okay? Jesus is pure because he's conceived by the Holy Spirit, or what we call the Immaculate Conception. Don't miss that. That's one aspect that shows the greater or greatness of Jesus. And friends, what I want to tell you also, if ever a church comes and begins to deny the Immaculate Conception, run. Because that is foundational to our theology. That is a truth that cannot, should never be compromised. Right here in Scripture, it demonstrates John's great 
but John is conceived by standard means. Jesus is better because he's the son of God, his kingdom will never end, and he's conceived by the Holy Spirit because he is both God and man, and he breaks the sin-cursed lineage. Why? Because Jesus will go to the cross as the unblemished lamb. All of this right here is starting to be alluded to, right as we start in this gospel. So Gabriel brings news that the work of John would be surpassed by the greater work of Christ. Greetings to you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. I'm in uh, verse 28. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting it might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. John is great. Jesus is better. Not only by name, but by title. Yeshua, Savior. He will be great. In the Greek, don't miss this. This is like definitive, final, conclusatory is maybe the best way to say it. It's not, he will be great, he might be great, he could be great, he'll be great for a little bit. He will be great, period, exclamation point. No end, done, no change, no failure. He will be great. and will be called the Son of the Most High. Right there, that title should cause people to say, oh my gosh, something big is happening. Because those words were not used by anybody other than, this is interesting, in Genesis 14, 18, Melchizedek. That should bring reverberation to your ears. He will be the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him, the Lord God will give him the throne. Wait a minute. He's not just going to save God's people, but the Lord, whom we worship, is going to give him the throne of his father David. So he's in the line. Things are beginning to line up according to prophecy. And all is starting to occur. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will never end. That proclamation right there is one of the greatest proclamations of the redemption of God's people that we see in scriptures. Interestingly enough, Mary's smarter. Guys, sorry. But inquisitively, she asks, not I doubt, but how will this be? How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answers, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Right there, that statement, hold on to that, circle that, bold it, don't ever let go of it, but right there, that is the Immaculate Conception. That is the proclamation by Gabriel who's been sent by God to say 
that the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. Essentially, a kind way of saying the Holy Spirit will impregnate you and Jesus will be born. Because he will be fully God and fully man. I won't go too long on this, but you cannot remove the Immaculate Conception. And if you do, it's like a house of cards. Because if Jesus was not conceived by the Holy Spirit, then he could not be God in the flesh. But also, because he was conceived by Mary, he is fully human. Fully God and fully man. And that is a theology that cannot be broken in the Christian faith. We continue on and we see that Gabriel brings the news that the work of John would be surpassed by the greater work of Christ. And then in the final aspects, verses 34 through 37, through Mary, God brings about the redemption of mankind through the birth of Jesus. The whole aspect of this proclamation is the redemption of God's people. Not for a time, not for a period, not through temple sacrifice, not through offering incense, but through Jesus, the unblemished lamb, who as we see, as we know in the fullness of scripture, will be born, will live a life, and then in and around the age of 27 or 30, depending upon how you want to date him, begin his earthly ministry. His earthly ministry will last approximately three to three and a half years where he will proclaim essentially the good news of what his mission is. And his mission is not to be king of the world, but to be king of the world by going to the cross to die upon it. Friends, I've said before that you cannot have the cross without Christ but you can't have Christ without the cross. The two go hand in hand. Christ's mission when he was born was to go to the cross and die upon it. How, when he became cognizant of that, theologians will say it's a great mystery. Some will say that it was when he entered into the temple and he became aware essentially that that was his mission. Others will say that at some point in time, perhaps when he began his earthly ministry, that's when he became aware. But what we know is, is at some point, Jesus on an earthly level knew the mission. But what we can say is on an eternal one, he knew the mission. When he was with the Father in heaven before, as we read in Philippians 2, he humbled himself. Jesus knew that the reason that he was going was not to sit and have a wonderful earthly ministry. He was going to die. And the proof that we see in that is seen in the text of Isaiah. When Isaiah says that this person, this individual, will be beaten and bruised and murdered and sacrificed so that the sins of God's people can be atoned for. And Jesus signed up for it. And he said, may it be so. And friends, what we celebrate in the birth of Christ and the cuteness of it is this. 
recognize that when Jesus is on the cross and he's breathing his last breath and he looks out upon the world that he's created and made and the world that he's created and made says crucify him. He doesn't turn and say you're not worth it. He says what? Forgive them, Father. For they know not what they do. That's a God that I want to worship. That's a God of love, mercy, and grace. That's the story of Christmas. And so friends, through Mary, God brings about the redemption of mankind through the birth of Jesus. But may we recognize and remember that the birth of Jesus leads to the death of Jesus, leads to the resurrection of Jesus, leads to the ascension of Jesus, and leads to the promise that Jesus will come again. And so this morning, what I want to encourage you with is this. This is sort of the aspect that I'd like to leave you with this morning. And it's simply this, that God is always working. God is always working to bring about the redemption through the birth, death, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Don't ever forget it. Don't ever doubt it. Don't ever question that. And recognize that in these moments of darkness, in these moments where we wonder, God has made a promise, and that promise holds true. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you this morning. We thank you so much for you and the blessedness that you are to us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the joy and the promise that you've been given through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Father, as we look to Christmas, may we recognize what we've been given. Father, how great was it for Zechariah and Elizabeth to be given a son, John the Baptist? How great was John the Baptist and his ministry? But Father, how much greater laid in the same context is Jesus, our Savior, the one who has established an eternal kingdom that will never end, the one who has given us eternal life through his sacrifice. Father, may we be mindful of that as we celebrate Christmas, as we look to God, our Emmanuel, God with us. May we realize how God has and is and will be with us through the promises of Scripture. We thank you. We love you. We pray these things in your name, and we ask it by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people say, Amen. If you're